I, I used to call myself a creative director as well, but as you pointed out, no one really knows what that means. So I tried to come up with something that's a little more descriptive and obvious. Um, I don't know if I'm, I'm quite there yet, but yeah, I'm, I'm a brand expert. I, what that means really is I help clients build brands that actually, you know, that attract people to, to want to do business with them. So is that just making them a logo then? <laughs> Not quite. Well, it, it is that, of course, of course. And I know you're kind of teasing me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I mean, branding is your logo, but it's so much more than that. It's really, you know, kind of a comprehensive effort to kind of influence the way that people perceive your company, right? That's how I think of it, at least. Yeah, I, I was poking you when I said that because uh, brand is that funny old word that nobody quite understands what brand is. And mm. um, when you when you say you do branding or somebody comes to you and they want you to do branding, often in, in, in my world, that will often mean that they want a logo or they want a logo mm. on brand guidelines if they know what they're talking about. Mm. So, so the branding term in in general it, it is a tough term to to talk about because nobody quite knows what it means right yeah um and not it, even most people in the business i think to be perfectly honest well th- does it have an absolute meaning do you think it's got an absolute meaning i mean i yeah i i do i i think it's quite nebulous and i you know, that's reflected in the fact that, you know, ask like a dozen different brand strategists or designers or marketing people, and they will all give you kind of a different answer. And I think most of them are, are pretty close to, to the actual thing itself. Uh, but mostly I think miss the mark. Yeah. Well, I- so my, my conception of, of a brand is essentially there are three parts to a brand, right? Three aspects to it. And one of those aspects is kind of the brand as the idea. So this would be like the vision of the entrepreneur or the business owner or whoever is kind of in charge of, of the brand, so to speak, and what they want it to be in the minds of their customers. Mm. Uh, then you have kind of the brand as, you know, a concrete, tangible thing. So these are all of the design assets, this is the messaging, uh, copywriting on the website, you know, basically every single touch point and everything that contributes to those different touch points. And that I think is, you know, the, the way that people mostly talk about brands is, you know, referring to these different design assets and copywriting and so forth. But then you have also, of course, brand as image, right? So this is what people, how people actually perceive your brand. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's kind of the final stage. That's what matters the most. And you have this kind of flow from the brand as a vision, which is then translated into design assets and copywriting that then hopefully along with the overall customer experience will influence the the brand image in, in such a way that it more closely resembles the the vision of of the company so that's kind of my conception of it yeah i completely agree i think there's there's an interesting point in that where you 
so, so you're completely right that there's there's several levels to it, and the visual side of a brand is only one small part of it. But what's but what's quite interesting about the visual side of it is the marrying of the visual side to the values and things like that. And something in my experience that a lot of people miss is the fact also that when you first make a brand, let, let's take the term logo because that's what everybody understands. When you first make a logo for somebody, the the things that it means on day one when you've made it for somebody isn't necessarily going to be the same things that it means on month six or or two years down the line. Um, and I don't know about you, but when, when I'm trying to explain that kind of thing to clients, sometimes the fact that it takes time for you to develop the brand that you actually want to develop, that can be some of the most difficult conversations to have. I don't know if you feel right. the same, that it is so nebulous. Yeah, definitely. And there is this kind of element to it, of course, especially when you're looking at something very visual or, you know, you, you're looking at your name as, as an example. That's something that I think a lot of business owners get really attached to. And like you mentioned, like the, the meaning that we kind of associate with these things that will change over time. And I, I think that's often one of the big obstacles to overcome when you're kind of rebranding and established business is actually overcoming these emotional attachments that the business owner or the people who are in the company have kind of developed over time with the existing brand identity. And, and how do you generally try to get them to get away from that, to actually remove themselves from it and to not feel attached to a name, for example, especially if you're suggesting to them that they shouldn't call themselves that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, for me personally, I, I don't do any like outbound marketing. I don't approach clients or potential clients to pitch them on my, uh, you know, on my services. They always come to me. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really about reminding them why, you know, they approached me to, to begin with and, and to kind of, you know, always, tie things back to the underlying business reasons why you should invest in branding in the first place and why it matters. And it's not because of the emotional associations or connections that you develop with it as the business owner. It's, you know, to drive actual tangible business outcomes, right? And if your, your name or your logo gets in the way of that, then, you know, at least the way I see it, uh, you know, if, if you want to maximize your revenue and your profits, then it has to go, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've been in situations where in, instead of throwing everything out, I've, I've had to make compromises where I say, well, we'll do this as kind of a halfway house. And then maybe in a, in a year's time, we'll drop the final bit that you're so attached to. <laughs> and right. it's it kind of a, a compromise with them to, to say, and sometimes that works too, especially if you're, if in a branding project, you are switching from the name of, of somebody, for example, mm -hmm. and then inventing a new name. Sometimes the a kind of a middle stage can be useful where you, you have one or, one or two of the things running at the same time to remind mm -hmm. people where somebody's coming from because um it, it isn't always a quick fix like i said if if it's an a long established company 
Uh, I mean, have you worked with any long established companies where they've had to change, completely change their branding? And how do you approach that? Yeah, I have. So last year I, I worked with a retail business in Australia, a kind of carpets and flooring shop. And they had been in business for, I believe, almost 40 years. So very well established, kind of a smaller business, had never really paid much attention to their marketing or or branding or anything of that nature. Uh, And then they were acquired by a new owner and, you know, this new management came in and and they wanted to kind of shake things up a little bit and, and modernize things a little bit. So their situation was exactly what you're describing, where the previous name was, uh, it came from the the founder of the company and they wanted to kind of, you know, actually start developing, developing a proper brand and something that could kind of stand on its own independently of whoever is running the business at any given time. And so we went through that process and it was a, it was a tough process because this was also a family business. The, the son um, of the owner, the original owner had bought the business from his, from his dad. So of course there were a lot of kind of memories and associations and, and ideas about what the brand should be. Um, but we kind of powered through it and I was very, I, I think I attract a certain kind of client where they tend to have a very analytical mind and, and to be very, you know, kind of emotionally detached in their ultimate decision-making. Um, and we were able to change the name from J and M, John and Mary floor, com- floor coverings to uh, Creme, and that's a that's a huge change, of course, like night and day. And and the the new business didn't look anything like the the old one. Um, and of course, like any <laughs> uh, any sane person would be worried at that point that you know what is the short-term effects of, of this big change, what are they going to be? Um, and are people even going to recognize us anymore? Are they going to just, you know, stop coming to us? Um, but in fact, like the, the results have been really amazing. I spoke to the owner, David, um, just the other day and he told me they have now grown 77%, uh, year over year since, since last year despite like the, the Corona pandemic, despite, uh, you know, all, all of these wildfires in Australia that were yeah. kind of plaguing the country earlier this year, I believe. Um, so yeah, they, it's been a phenomenal success and it's, yeah, that's pretty a, cool to see. Yeah. That's exactly what you want. But the, yeah. the, the initial thing you, you've, you've got to instill faith in them that that's the initial yeah. initial hard bit it's going to take them three months six months a year or something like that to see the results of the things that you're doing now and that is that's the same as all design to be honest the we can throw as many figures at somebody as we want and say we've done this in the past but mm. you usually we're working on a project that we've never tackled before even if we well we're we always are and even if we've worked in the same industry, working with a different... Yeah, even if we worked with the same client. Yeah. And we, we can't really guarantee the results, right? And Right. So that, that bit is, is always the difficult bit, I find. Um, 
getting them to buy in, especially if it's a big change, especially like what you were describing there. It's awesome that they bought into it. Yeah, it, it takes a, I, I think a big leap of faith to, to make that decision and to, to move forward. Yeah, I, I had a I had a similar one a, a couple of years ago. We were rebranding a a business center in in Barnsley, which I'm rep, mm. repping at the, at right now. If you watch <laughs> listening to this on the podcast, right. you can't see my welcome to Barnsley sign behind my head. Um, yeah, we worked with a local business center, and they were going from a very obscure name to something that people would understand. So they they mm. they went from a series of letters, uh, and. I don't know how you feel about it, but the majority of the businesses out there that use initials for their name, unless you're BMW, just don't do it. Just mm-hmm. come up with a better name. So they, so they went from an initialized name to an actual name of something. And that was a huge leap for them. They'd been called that for 40 years, and 30 or 40 years. And, and to make such a huge shift was, again, a big leap of faith for them, but they did it. And it, it proved successful for them. I think one of the other things that they found as well, you probably found the same thing, is that when they get rebranded, it isn't just a visual change or just a change of the values or a change of the messaging. It is kind of a renewed fire in their belly as well mm-hmm. to push the business forward. And I think that also helps. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it gives you a, a kind of sense of renewed direction and and i think just clarified direction too i think so many businesses you know my myself included we kind of are are just you know taking taking shots in the dark and and hoping that things with with marketing or, or messaging or these different things are going to to pan out and i think just sitting down and kind of figuring out like what is the strategy here what are we trying to achieve and like what is it that our potential customers care about that we want to communicate to them? I I think that's something that most businesses don't do nearly enough. And once you actually do sit down and and you think these things through, that just makes things so much easier. And it's like this big, you know, like load off your, off your mind about, you know, you no longer have to kind of second guess yourself in terms of, you know, should this be the headline copy on, on the homepage? You know, is this how we should be describing ourselves? And you kind of, you feel a, a sense of, of certainty or at least confidence in your communications again. It's your guiding light, right? You, you know, you know, straight away when you need to make any business decision or marketing decision, you know, right, that's what I need to say because it fits in with mm-hmm. the, the things that I said I'm going to follow. Yeah, I think one interesting thing you mentioned earlier, and then I want to go on to something else after this, is about the fact that you get most of your work from referrals. Uh, well, all of your work, you said, right? Well, from from inbound. So a lot of them are yeah. referrals. Uh, I'm pretty bad about asking for referrals. I yeah, me too. I keep having to like remind myself, like, oh, you should be more, you should be more pushy. You should, you know, follow up with people. You should actually ask for it in the first place, but. A, a big chunk of my um, of my customers, you know, they've seen previous clients of mine, or you know, clients that I currently work with, or they've read like one of my blog posts. They found me through Google, you know, these kinds of things. But I'm really never the one reaching out to them. Yeah, um, 
how how did that start? How do, how do you attribute that? Because uh, the majority of your clients are, are worldwide, right? Then they're, they're not just local yeah. clients. So how did you go from zero to something, basically, with that? Right. Well, I think a, a great deal of it was just kind of sheer luck. So I got into, I kind of dipped my toes in in design and freelancing in my senior year of high school, where I stumbled upon this this project, you know, found it through kind of an acquaintance of mine, a friend of a friend who worked as a, uh, like a project manager at the, I believe it's the second biggest uh, construction company here in Scandinavia, NCC. Mm-hmm. And they were looking for, for help with like a presentation design. And I like, you know, this 18 year old kid um, just replied like, yeah, I, I can do that. That that sounds <laughs> sounds easy enough. Uh, that I don't think you know. I have done that in in high school before for you know class presentations, and uh, of course it's it's a lot more. There's a lot more to it than that than just like knowing the technical skills of PowerPoint or, or Keynote. Uh, but I got the gig, and I, that's how I kind of discovered that, huh? This is something you can make money with. And then uh, I want to say a year later, so this was after I had graduated high school, I had taken a gap year to teach myself web development. Um, and at, towards the end of that gap year, I decided that, you know, I should probably, I've been doing these like smaller websites for kind of friends of mine, but I haven't really had a proper client, like someone that I didn't know before and someone that I can actually you know, whose work I can actually show in a portfolio or something like that. And so I reached out to this guy, Ed Lattimore. Um, I'd been following him on, on Twitter for a while. And I think at the time he had something like 4,000, 5,000 Twitter followers. Wow. And he was this guy, really incredible guy, incredible life story, uh, professional heavyweight boxer, uh, was doing like a physics degree, uh, just like all around very interesting guy from Pittsburgh. Uh, and he was also blogging and I looked at his, at his blog and it was this really plain like WordPress template that he had set up. And so I just decided like, well, maybe I can reach out to him and, and see if, if he'd be willing to give me a shot at, you know, redesigning his website and maybe he could give me like a shout out in exchange. And so I, at this point, I I had no idea about really like proper design, proper UX UI design, or just graphic design in general. So I fired up GIMP, you know, like the free, uh, (laughs) (laughs) the free, like, you know, poor man's Photoshop. And I sketched out this like mock-up of what I imagine that the homepage could look like. And I send that to him along with like a short message, introducing myself, of course, very self-confidently as a web designer and copywriter. Uh, Ooh, <laughs> and, nice. you know, can I can I build your your website in exchange for, uh, you, you know, the right to use it in my portfolio and a few shout outs on Twitter. And he gets back to me in like 10 minutes, I think even less than that. And he's like, yeah, man, let's do it. And, you know, I was a little bit shocked at first, but 
we get started on on this website. And I think about two weeks later, it's it's done, it's launched, and he tweets it out. And you know, despite the fact that looking back at it, it wasn't a great website or anything. Um, you know, he just got really great feedback, and people started reaching out to me because he'd mentioned that I had done the website for just like smaller gigs. Like I did this, um, email list pop-up for, (laughs) for, um, a law firm in California, you know, just picking up small gigs here and there. And that's kind of, I guess, how I, I got my start and it just kind of snowballed from, from there on out. I think that's probably, three or f- four years ago at this point, I think. So what, does that make you 22 now, 23? Yeah, that makes me 23. I'm about to turn 24 in a couple of weeks. This is what's so... Fa- you want to get me something. <laughs> <laughs> this is what's so fascinating to me because when, when I was 18, uh, 18 and a half, I got, I got my first design job and I was working for somebody else. And then, and then I built my skills up over, I think it was over five years for other agencies. And you were 18, uh, and already, even though you didn't have my design skills because you'd not been formally trained, you'd got your shit together enough to just DM a guy on Twitter, Ed Lattimore, <laughs> and it all goes from there. And then within six to 12 months you've got your own business and now a couple of years down the line you you're running your your own agency uh it's just it's just fascinating to me that you've got and i don't i don't mean this in a bad way because some people say this about me you've got an old head on young shoulders Uh, and i just i just wondered what why did you why did you go down that route did you, did you know, why didn't you go down the uni route as everybody else does? And, and why did you think, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to go to university to learn design or how, why did you go down that route? Was it planned or was this just like a one-off thing and it just snowballed from that? No, I think it was more coincidence more than anything. Um, so I, I'm, I'm from Sweden, obviously. And in high school I had I'd studied this program called International Baccalaureate. Um, right. I know you guys have it over in in the UK as well. It's this kind of international, um, you know, program and curriculum. It's the same in every single country. And you know, the the idea of it, the point of it, is essentially to make it very easy for you to apply, um, you know, abroad when when you uh, when it's time to go to university. Yeah. And so I, I had done that and it's a, it's a fairly rigorous curriculum and I had just kind of coasted through it. And the specific reason why I bring this up is because I had um, <laughs> convinced my, my teacher to, to kind of break the rules and, and let me take uh Swedish as a second language. Obviously I'm a native Swedish speaker. And so I wasn't supposed to be allowed to take that course, but I I told him, you know, well, you know, I'm going to study abroad anyway. It doesn't really matter. I'm never going to use it. And besides, you know, I made, made up this kind of half lie, half truth about, I I had attended a Waldorf school in, in 
kind of primary and middle school. And I, you know, told him like, well, you know, we, we mostly spoke German in, <laughs> in middle school. So I, I, I don't, I didn't really study that much Swedish anyway. So you should let me take Swedish as a second language, which would disqualify me from attending any Swedish universities. Okay. And so that's actually why I was forced to take this gap year was I eventually decided that doesn't make financial sense for me to study abroad. It's very expensive. Um, and besides I didn't put in enough effort to, to get the grades that I would have wanted to, in order to get into like a, a really good school abroad. Um, so I figured, you know, okay, maybe I should study, maybe I should stay here in Sweden and, and study here instead. But then what that meant was that I had to like retake the exams for, uh, the more advanced Swedish course. And so while I was waiting to do that, you know, I, I had to find some way to pass time. And so I figured, you know, why don't I just learn like a useful skill? Why don't I learn web development and see if I can, you know, get decent enough at that to where I can like maybe build a website, you know, maybe if in the future, if I ever start like my own business or something, then I could, uh, you know, I wouldn't have to pay someone else to do that for me. Yeah. So that's, that's how I kind of decided to do that. It wasn't like I had this, this grand plan, this grand scheme to, uh, to break into the creative industry or anything like that. It was just kind of, you know, I need something to do here. I feel just useless, um, wasting time doing nothing. So, yeah. I, and I think you, you're the, you're the perfect case study of proof that, you don't need to go to university if it's not right for you. I will I will caveat it with if it's not right for you. And right. For a lot of people, I don't think it is right. But w- what you did with your time was spent it learning a useful skill. And what, what you've shown is that anybody can learn a skill from the internet and then go apply that trade online, completely location independently. And... I don't think enough people, even now, I still don't think enough people are thinking that. Right. Um, I know, I know, I didn't. I, I'm, I'm a slightly different generation to you. I'm ten years older, but it's even now, only this year, and I've had this conversation a bunch of times with people I've spoken to on my podcast about the location independence thing, and about the fact now that Twitter and Facebook and any anything any of these tools give you the ability to truly build an income from anywhere and work with anybody around the world over this last six months with with COVID and everything I think that's made more people realize it but e- even now I think there's there's still people that that don't get that and they're still thinking right I, I live in the UK or I live in Sweden which means I have to go to university in one of those places or I have to fly to somewhere else and go to university just wonder what what's what's your thoughts on on that kind of thing was it quite intentional that you didn't get initially swedish clients did you did you want to work with people somewhere else that was never really no i I wouldn't say that was intentional i i was just more comfortable dealing with english-speaking clients because that's the language that I'd spoken kind of full time for the past three years. 
Right. So it, it came more naturally to me at the time. And I felt like, well, I can either, you know, if I were to do something here in Sweden, you know, the market is much smaller and I don't really have the, the professional network or the business network here yeah. to, to actually do that successfully and effectively. So I might as well just, you know, use like social media and, and connect with people on Twitter and, you know, tap into this way bigger market and also just kind of, I don't know. I mean, there are so many benefits to, to being location independent, as you say, up until very recently, one of those benefits was the, the exchange rates between the American dollar and, and the Swedish currency. Now the American dollar has kind of, uh, crashed in, in comparison to, <laughs> to, uh, the Swedish Corona. But, you know, for a very long time, that was like, oh, wow. I, you know, this, the Swedish Krona keeps like decreasing in value. And so I'm making more and more money without really having to, to charge that much more, you know, to my clients. So that, that was like one little side benefit, I, I guess, kind of an incentive to, to keep looking for clients overseas as opposed to, uh, kind of exploring the domestic market a bit more. It's interesting because I, I've done it the complete opposite way around. I've done, hmm everything we've been running our agency for 10 years pretty much 99% of our clients I've met in person and I, I see them fairly regularly and they live pretty close to me within a drive within a drive and it and it's only it is only this year that I've started to realize and get clients further further afield in other countries and stuff that I've started mm. to realize that uh, there is advantages to having local clients, absolutely. Um, but there's almost now, with the tools that we have, and I feel like such an old guy for saying this, it's uh, it, now with the tools we've got and even how much Zoom's improved in even the last six months, there, there, there like isn't any downsides to having clients anywhere around the world, it's, especially with the things that we do, especially in, in, in design. And, and because a lot, a lot of it isn't tangible, it's so easy to work with clients from anywhere around the world. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially this year, you know, it's made me reflect a lot more on this idea of diversification. And of course, like when you're investing in the stock market, you want to be diversified across many different stocks, but also I think many different markets. Right. Yeah. And I, to me, it would make sense that you would run your business in the same way where you would try to diversify as much as possible. So as to be kind of less dependent on, you know, for example, like the, the British economy or even like the Barnsley economy, you know, what if something happens locally where you experience kind of a downturn and all of a sudden, you know, all of your leads and, and all of your clients, they stop, you, you know, they dry up essentially. Yeah. And then you're, you're kind of faced with, with this monumental challenge of very quickly trying to pivot towards a different market. But I think if you build your business in such a way that that is kind of built into it, where you're working with, you know, I'm working with people in Germany, I'm working with people in the Netherlands, I'm working with a lot of people in the U S and some in Australia and, you know, just from all over the world. And that kind of makes me feel I don't know. It, it gives me a sense of security that, you know, if something were to happen, um, 
in any particular market or any particular economy. Of course, there is a lot of kind of interconnectedness in the world, but you know, you can still look for clients elsewhere and you're not as tied to the fate of one specific country for your livelihood. You're completely right. It's something I've reflected a lot on as well, especially different kinds of income. I've experimented with mm. digital products a lot this year, with Gumroad products, with making PDFs and trying to sell them and see how they work. And the the other thing as, as well, not only is having clients in lots of different locations useful to diversify, but the, the, the other side of it as well is uh, and this is something that we never did at Genius Division with our agency, is the thing that a lot of people tell you to do when you've got an agency is niche down to one industry. Yeah. And, and now this year, I'm so thankful that we never did that and we still continue to never do that. Because if we would have picked and been unlucky, for example, if we would have said we're only going to work with catering industry clients or, or restaurants or whatever, we would have been screwed this year. And that, the idea of niching down, particularly for agencies, is a, is a hot topic. And I'm glad that it's something that we've always fought against, that we've always said, well, we enjoy working with people across all industries and our skills can be applied to any industry. Mm. Is that the kind of, have you done that on purpose as well? Not niche down? I mean, for us, the, the reason that we didn't niche down for a long time was that we just enjoyed working with anybody and we just right. said yes to everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's certainly part of, of kind of the impetus, I think, is that, you, you know, novelty seeking aspect where, mm. you know, it, it sounds fun to work with like someone that's so far out of left field that I, I would never even think that this was like a, an industry or, or a type of business. Right. Yeah. But for me, really, I, I, I could definitely see myself niching down in the future and maybe even in the near future. But what's kind of kept me from it thus far is I feel like where I'm at in my, my career and in my business, you know, I'm, I'm still only 23 and I don't, I, I, won't, I only have like four years of experience, maybe five years at this point in the industry. I would feel like such a fraud if, if I were to try and claim that, you know, I am an expert at doing branding for a specific industry. Like mm-hmm. I am an expert at, uh, you, you know, I, I don't even know, like, what, what can you be an expert at? Like, Hey, I'm an expert at CPG brands or I'm an expert at yeah. uh, doing branding for, uh, <laughs> you know, ballerina studios or, or what, <laughs> what have you, ballet studios, dance studios. It, it would just feel like I'm really, you know, trying to, I, I don't know, my imposter syndrome would just flare up so much. I, I couldn't do it. Because I've only, the, the most domain expertise that I have in, in any particular, like specific industry of, of business is the automobile industry. I've done two online car marketplaces. And the rest is just, you know, I've, I've done like one home improvement retail store. I've done a couple of different types of e-commerce brands. I've done a couple of different, you know, 
I, I don't have that, you know, specialization yet. So it, it would just not make sense for me to, to try to niche down and to claim a specific category. We've always used the argument as well that when we come into an industry that we've never worked in, you get fresh ideas. And yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, that is a valid thing to say because they're often hiring a creative industry for their ideas. And it, if you just go to another agency that already works in the industry, they usually just bring in the ideas from the same industry, right? And when you work with a lot of different industries, you see things that seem to work in one industry that doesn't work in another, and it, or vice versa. And you can part across things that you've seen in one industry and bring it to another. And I, yeah. I, I've weighed it up for a long time, and there's been moments where we've nearly nearly niched down into stuff and never done it. We've, we've bottled it before we did it. And I, I, st I still don't think I'd want to want to niche down for an industry. I, I can I can see myself in the future niching down for products. So the cer certain things that I offer. So, right. ra so rather than saying, and we kind of already do it at Genius Division, we, we're very much a digital agency and our specialism is web. But I could see myself personally niching down to something very specific that I only offer this one thing. And I, and I noticed on your website earlier today that you've kind of got some products on there as well. And for me, niching down as a designer, that's where I'd prefer to be rather than for an industry. Because I do think I'd get bored pretty quickly as well if I wasn't just working in one industry. Yeah, maybe it's possible, but you know, it's interesting. I, you know, the, this, this advice that you should niche down has been kind of the industry standard for a very long time, I feel like. Yeah. And it seems to me that there's this kind of counter trend going on right now where there is kind of this resurgent demand for lateral thinking and, and for people that don't necessarily have a ton of domain expertise you know, in a specific industry, but are, like you say, maybe they're UX experts, for example. I, I, I think, was it Capital One, the bank, that um, specifically said that we are never going to work with another agency that only specializes in financial services. We want to work with like a UX firm or a branding firm or a marketing firm that has perspectives, fresh perspectives from other industries and can mm -hmm. bring some of that uh, freshness into our industry. And I think that's a totally valid, valid point. I, I think it's powerful. And I think another thing you touched upon as well is the imposter syndrome thing. And also you work in marketing and you've got morals because it sounded like you had morals. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you're not supposed to do that. Yeah, that that's yeah. Some, something that I we felt for a long time as well that a lot of our decisions are, are based on things that we don't want to do because you know we feel quite strongly about it morally which mm -hmm. a lot of people in the marketing the marketing realm in anything from web designers to graphic designers to marketers classic marketers to advertisers a lot of people in our industry do not have morals and that's where we get the bad name and Right. Tra yeah. Trying to separate that out sometimes is is really tough. It takes. I I've had clients that I've worked with where they hate designers or they hate web companies, 
when we start working with them. And then over a couple of months, they start to warm to you. But I, I often, even now with some, you are often still always proving that you have morals, <laughs> that you, you're not going to rip them off, that you are there to help them, that you are there to inv- advance the business. So it, it's refreshing to hear morals as well from somebody else. <laughs> right. And I think there is, you know, very telling, I, I think, is that the marketing industry as a whole, there is a lot of kind of moral posturing going on and a lot of virtue signaling. But when push comes to shove and it it's actually about like business ethics, yeah. there is that, that kind of goes out the window and and. You know, it's all about just making as much money and extracting as much cash from your clients as possible, which, you know, I, I don't think I could ever bring myself to, to doing that. It, I just feel very, very icky, I think. Yeah. And it isn't always just about morals. You're right. It is business ethics and it's trying to do, do the right thing that feels right. And also learning learning from potentially mistakes you've made in the past and passing those lessons on to clients. And even so, just some, so many of the basic stuff that a lot of marketers just don't get right across the entire industry is just communicating with people and, and being, being pleasant people and actually, <laughs> you know, actually wanting to see somebody do well. That is an unbelievably rare trait. And, and I know when you get brought in as, a, as another agency after somebody who, who was there before, they're usually quite bitter about the previous person. So you don't always yeah. get the full story. <laughs> but the, I, I've been in situations many times where I, I can't quite believe how some people are acting to mm-hmm. to to their clients who, who are still their clients and we're working on something with them. And they almost treat customers with disdain, that they're a pain, that they don't want to work with them but they have to. Mm-hmm. Um, customer service it, it is always been a strong thing for me, but it isn't a strong thing in the industry. No, I and, and I've always, that sort of attitude has always rubbed me the, the wrong way. It, it seems to me like there's this kind of, like you say, it's this resentment towards clients, right? And I think fundamentally, I think it stems just from people's inability to, like designers and, and creatives inabilities, inability to, you know, properly deal with clients and to actually be like professional and to, and also just to, to kind of stand up for themselves and to set boundaries. I think a lot of this resentment stems from, you know, a lot of creatives being kind of pushovers and yeah. just doing whatever the client tells them to in in the moment. And then, you know, going away to their, designer buddies and like complaining about how terrible clients are and how they, they wish they would just all die or or something (laughs) like that. And and rather than just kind of figuring this thing out, like, okay, well, how do I set expectations in such a way that I never get this request again? And and that people don't perceive me in this way as like a pushover. And, And then you can actually have like good, healthy, productive relationships with your with your clients. I mean, pretty much maybe not all of my clients, but most of my clients, they end up becoming like friends of mine. And I, you know, WhatsApp them on probably like a weekly basis. And I I just think that's such a, I don't know, 
a way more enjoyable way to to work and to do business than to you know go walk around and and be all mad uh at your clients <laughs> yeah just be unhealthy. just being mad all the time it's not good for you yeah it's but miserable i i think the the other thing as well i like being nice to people but the other thing, it makes good business sense to be nice to people because it isn't yeah. always, you don't always know where the next client is coming from. And it, it just makes good business sense to actually be nice to people and want to get more than one project out of them because uh, the industry can be feast and, or famine and sometimes there's no projects for a couple of months and sometimes there's a rush of too many projects. And it always pays to keep people on your side no matter what because you never know what's going to be around the corner. Now now I've been doing it for 15 years. I, I've had many people who've gone through multiple companies and brought us in because they've just right. moved, they've moved jobs over that time. And I had another one just today. And those kind of relationships, yeah, they're priceless because you've got to do no, no work to reintroduce yourself. You don't have to prove yourself to them. You don't have to show you that your, your portfolio. They already understand the way that you work, your values and the things that you believe in. And the one that I had today, they were they were just like, yeah, I want we want you for the project because you did this last time and we know mm -hmm. you'll do a good job. So we're going to do everything to get you on this project. That's the kind of relationships you want. Uh, you, don't, you don't get those when, uh, and another story that somebody told me recently was, that they've got an in-house designer and the designer actually called them a moron the the day the day before i'm like i i'd, I'd never no matter how much i hate a client and it, it's not it's not very often that i get into that situation but you know sometimes relationships can break down and even if i think back to the worst client relationships i've i've ever had i never call them a moron because it, it's just no. <laughs> it's just not professional is it you've got to keep some level of professional standards with somebody when you're talking to them yeah absolutely i mean that's just kind of i don't know that that's not even at that point it's not even about professionalism it's about just being i don't know polite to people right being well-mannered i feel like yeah i mean you shouldn't yeah i don't know it's an interesting thing you say about saying no, saying no to mm -hmm. clients, because that's not something I learned very quickly, especially not in my first four years of being a designer when I worked, mm. because I worked for somebody else. I think maybe it was part of the problem. I was removed from a lot of the client situations, so I didn't have to say no to them. But how how have you learned that kind of thing so quickly to, to have those grown-up opinions on clients <laughs> well i think i you know there were a couple of times very early on that i i got burned by clients like really bad and you know at one point i i was even like contemplating not doing this as as a job anymore just kind of closing down shop and, and doing something else going back to to school or something so I, I think I, I kind of learned it the hard way, yeah. just figuring, trying to figure out like what had happened, what had gone wrong and how to prevent that from, from happening again in the future. And I, I think that that's really just what, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's it. 
What did you turn to any books or anything in particular that sticks out in your mind? Certainly there, there have been books and there have been videos that I've consumed that, that have kind of helped me along the way. I mean, Blair ends huge, um, huge influence in, in, Mm. you know, my attitude or or philosophy of, of dealing with clients, um, people like Christo, David C. Baker, Um, but really, I mean, most of it, I think you have to learn firsthand book, uh, you know, you know, the theory will only get you so far and maybe it can help you kind of once you've identified what the problems are and, and maybe it can help you kind of give you a couple of, of quick wins or, or answers that have worked for other people. But at the end of the day, I, I think you really need to you know, be in it and, and figure things out for yourself and finding where, you know, when it comes to client boundaries, I think for a while I was probably too strict with boundaries, uh, because I had, you know, been very much influenced by people like Clarence and, you know, just finding what is the right kind of level of strictness or, or whatever it may be for, for you and for your kind of style of, of doing business. Um, yeah. What, what? I think it's just about kind of being proactive and identifying mm-hmm. problems really early on and figuring out like, what can I do to minimize this problem? Like, how do I think it arose and, and how can I squash this in the future? I think in general as well, clients just work different they have they all have different personalities and it it does mean (laughs) it does mean that with some of them it's a very hands-off relationship it might mostly mostly be over email another one it might be zoom calls once a week because they don't like email and then another Mm -hmm. one it might be whatsapp messages so that's that's something that i learned over a long period of time that it doesn't matter what my favorite method of communication is if my client doesn't enjoy communicating in that way, in that particular instance, it's worth me meeting them at least halfway on some of those things to get the be- the best work out of both of us. It's not it's not fair for me to say I only communicate over email. Therefore, everything you we have to do is over email. Uh, right. I, yeah, I, I did kind of the same thing. And another thing that I learned probably after about five or six years was to stop replying to emails instantly don't don't do that Mm. okay don't 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 keep your email open and don't reply instantly i used to think that it by me replying to an email instantly it meant that i i was showing good customer service it meant that uh you know i i was i was quick off the ball and all that kind of thing but you end up finding one yourself sat in your email all day because you'll leave it open all day because you're waiting for an email to come in. And then two, there's an expectation, and this is where we talk about the client expectations. There's an expectation that you will reply instantly. And yeah. email is not instant message. And you you should never mostly get into a situation where you are replying to a client in an instant message unless you've got it set up like that with a client. So treating email as an instant message service is just a recipe for disaster. So over a couple of years, I started to realize, don't sit in your email and only open it maybe twice a day 
and then don't reply to them straight away. Leave it a couple of hours. Sometimes if it's not important, you can leave it a day. Uh, all those tricks, you're completely right. You, you don't learn them by reading a book. You learn them from spending time doing these things wrong over and over mm. and over. You hinted at, uh, uh, some client horror stories. Have you got any you're willing to share? I'll share one as well I mean, if you want one. Uh, all right. <laughs> Well, hmm. so there, there's this one, I, I, it, it was a horror story for a while, but it, it has a, a happy ending. <laughs> this was probably at this point a year and a half ago, I was working with this art studio in, in the U S in rural Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. And these, it was a family owned business. These two sisters, they were partners. Uh, one of them was kind of the artist. The other one was kind of like the, the administrative, uh, person helping, helping her, uh, messy creative sister with, with all of the paperwork and so on. And, um, you know, there were a lot of mistakes that I made early on really as, as early as, as just like getting the sale, I think. And these mistakes, they kind of kept compounding and compounding. And for, for a while it went really well. Like we, so we started with this brand strategy engagement and they were like over the moon, you know, no, I, I think like a literal quote, uh, from, one of the calls or one of the emails that they sent me was like, no one understands our business as, as well as you do, like not even, not even us. And, you know, I was like over the moon, wow, this is going great. And, uh, then it came time to negotiate the kind of the, the second part of the project. So we had been talking about, they had wanted like a visual identity for themselves. I was really more of the mind that a visual identity that's, that's nice for you guys. But I think where, where the real opportunity for you, where the real low hanging fruit is for you guys is to really professionalize your web presence. Like you have all of these different products that you're selling and the way that your website comes across it, it looks like, like a blog, like, you know, it had like the sidebar navigation. I don't know if you remember that from kind of back in the day, old WordPress <laughs> blogs. Um, and it was just like this Frankenstein's monster of, of, of a website. They, they had hundreds upon hundreds of pages and it was a mess. Their navigation had like 20 different items. And I felt very strongly that, look, if you guys fix this, then that is going to have a more impactful, uh, that's going to have a greater impact on, on your revenue because I'm, um, you know, you're guaranteed, you're guaranteed to be losing a lot of customers who might otherwise buy from you online, yeah. um, with this horrendous website. And so I kind of talked them into that and I, I really shouldn't have done that because come to find out, um, especially the, the sister, the, the one that was doing the admin, she was really attached to the way that they had been running things, especially with the website that was kind of her baby. Mm -hmm. And so when I came in and I, you know, wanted to change everything essentially, and I wanted to, you know, overhaul their, 
their backend for the e-commerce solution, make it just a better user experience. And I didn't really, you know, that was my priority when in reality their priority was, you know, making things as easy as possible for the sister who was doing the admin work and not kind of burdening her with, you know, having to learn a bunch of new things, um, not being a very technical person, you you know, um, it it had taken her a lot of time to kind of learn the current system and, you, you know, just shaking up that kind of workflow, I think was, was really tough for her to, to swallow um, and, and this caused like so many problems later on because it was fine for kind of the first two thirds of the project, I would say, but when it came down to like, okay, well now I'm going to be showing you how to make these changes. And now we're going to be collaborating here on adding all of these different products, these different courses that you have. That's when things started going south and pretty quickly like changed on on a dime pretty much where you know one day wow this this looks great i'm so thrilled with it and then the other day i get like this long email about how you know this website isn't at all what we expected it to be and it has all of these problems Mm -hmm. and these were things that we had already talked about and agreed upon earlier on but you know, I, I guess it just didn't really, you know, I, I don't know. I, I guess it kind of didn't sink in until we were almost done with the website, that this was how things were going to, to be from now on. And, um, yeah, we had this big falling out. Um, at, at one point they, you know, they threatened to, to kind of, withhold final payment eventually they did pay me um but yeah it was just like extremely stressful you know i had to take these phone calls in the middle of the weekends and yeah yeah, a very stressful situation um fortunately and and you know really fortunately for me uh, things you know slowly they started to come around they you know, I think got used to kind of the new way of doing things a little bit. I came around also after a while and I kind of reverted the e-commerce part of their website back to what it had been in the past. Um, because I, I guess I realized like the user experience and maximizing revenue and conversion rates wasn't actually the top priority for, for this client and just kind of humbling myself to that fact uh, I, I think really helped. And now we're, we're great friends and, and they both are subscribed to my newsletter and they'll like <laughs> reply to, uh, to my emails. I even shared the story on my newsletter and they replied like they thought it was really, really funny and, and heartwarming to, to kind of look back on, on this really like horror story for everybody involved. But yeah, now it's all good. Yeah, that just goes to show that so many situations in design is not about the design it's about the psychology behind the project and and if you make a misstep with that or if you don't quite understand the motivations of why they're doing the thing they are doing you can produce the best work in the world and they're still going to say no i don't like it 
purely right. <laughs> purely because it's nothing to do with the work it's the psychology mm-hmm. yeah do you want one from me yeah i'd love to hear it go ahead, give what me a got? give me a topic because i've probably got one for every kind of topic <laughs> oh wow okay <laughs> do you want a, a, a printing error where i cost somebody a lot of money or do you want a, a client falling out story or do you want one where yeah one of those two client falling out story or massive error on my part that cost people loads of money i'd like to hear about the the massive error on your part i think that would be really interesting <laughs> okay well i'll tell you this one then we'll finish on this all right so there's been there's maybe been two or three times in my 15 year career where i've cost a client a lot of money and they've they've always been on somebody else's time, thankfully, not my time. It's when I've when I was working for somebody else. <laughs> okay. Um and they've always been print jobs. So it's always been something to do with the printing. Uh, the mm. one the one that I always That's why you only do digital now, yeah, right? <laughs> I, absolutely, absolutely. And the client pays for the printing, we never foot the cost if we do do printing. Yeah. So this particular time, I'd only been a designer for probably a year and a half or something like that. And the place I used to work for, one of the first jobs I had, they they did design to a price list, which meant I had to work very quickly. And I I had this thing that caught me a few times in smaller ways that that had meant that the client had said that they needed a reprint. And I used to do this thing as a designer, and you know what? I still do it sometimes now, and I have to stop myself. I used to do this thing where I'd receive amends or content in a Word document, and instead of copy and pasting it out, I'd write it out. So I'd type the text instead of copy and pasting mm. it. I don't know why I did it. I just did it. And there was this particular one where I was I was in a rush, and they, they were doing this, this new brochure, this new brochure thing, and it had six inks on it. So for anybody who's not familiar with print, the, the standard inks when you print something, there's only four of them. You have to pay per extra ink. And... So this thing was very expensive, a couple of grand it cost just to do these brochures and some amends had come back and because I was rushed and I was working to a price list and I was trying to get everything done so quickly, the amends came in just to change a few bits of the text that they'd spotted a few words or something and I did my old trick where I decided I was just going to type it, type it out again and I, I typed it out, typed the amends out and I sent it off the client approved it and then it got sent to print and it was about a week or so after that and I got called downstairs to cook to come into the meeting room and I, I could just tell my boss was pissed off he, he was pissed <laughs> and they were both there I had two bosses as well so I thought shit I've done something I've done something wrong here and you know when your stomach just sinks and you just mm-hmm. you just know what it is straight away, and they say, "Well, you know this job, this folder that you did last week," and I'm like, oh, "Yeah, I've, I've, I I didn't copy, I didn't copy and paste it." Yeah, <laughs> and they they showed me this brochure, and it was the I remember it now, like it was yesterday, and the inside of the brochure was some text, so it was like a fold out A four thing, and inside there was some text, and they just said, "Just read through that text." So I sat there reading this text, and there there was there was only probably 10 words it was bullet pointed and there was 10 words bullet point 10 words bullet point 10 words and as soon as i read it i spotted just 
all of the mistakes that I just bashed out on my keyboard just instantly. I'm like, oh my God, I am never going to forget this one. And he said, well, this print job that you've messed up is going to cost us two grand. And I was like, oh, okay, (laughs) I'm I'm really sorry. And luckily they were, other than giving me a bit of a bollocking, they were fairly fine with it. And they, you know, they understood I was a new designer and I never made that specific mistake ever, (laughs) ever again. And it's always taught me and you need to learn from your mistakes. I don't think you learn it any other way. And it's always taught me a very basic thing (laughs) just to remember to copy and paste things (laughs) rather than type it out. I, I think it came from with some of the things that we used to get amends from everywhere. And sometimes it came through as a scanned document and you'd start typing it out. And I always learned after that, never, ever, not, uh, never put amends in when you can't copy and paste them. Ask for the original document. Always ask Mm -hmm. for the client's words. Always copy and paste it and never type it in. Right. Yeah. Good advice. (laughs) Good advice indeed. Well, it's been fun talking. We've gone over an hour. Wow, an hour and five. So thanks so much, John. And we'll chat again soon. Yeah, I look forward to it. Cheers, man. All right, take care.